Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And good morning to you at home, too. Hope to see you here soon if you're home uh, for whatever reason. Glad you're tuning in. I uh, have a couple things uh, to say before I get into the message. One, I don't know where my uh, brain went briefly toward the end of the service. Somebody said something to me, uh, just asking a question about Mission Sunday before service, and for some reason I got it stuck in my brain, Mission Sunday, and there I was taking up the offering at the last minute, telling everybody it was Mission Sunday, and it wasn't. This week's Mission Sunday, and maybe most of you had that plan. Maybe you, you guys have that scheduled in your own little uh, organizers better than you're not waiting for the for the announcement on the spot. But today is Mission Sunday, so there are two offering receptacles out there. Uh, if you uh, brought uh, a separate offering for missions, make sure it goes in the right one. If you want a uh, separate envelope or to write a separate check at the end, you can do that as well. But that is to support the missions that we support on a regular basis and to also uh, invest in the fund that allows us to give over and above what a particular offering gives to a guest speaker or missionary. The other thing is we have got out there on the table, there are forms we'd like you to take. We are uh, going to, very soon, we'd like to update our directory. So if you could take those forms, fill them out and return them or fill them out and just drop them in the office before you leave even. Anybody can be in the directory. If you come here, we want you in the directory. Uh, So please fill that out. The only people that can have a directory uh, our members. So uh, if you've got questions about membership, see us. We'd love you to become a member. There is a, it's a low, low cost, $5,000 per member of the family. No, no, no. There is no charge for membership. There just, there's some, uh, uh, some CDs we have you listen to, just some doctrinal points we have you agree to, and that's about it. Uh, we just kind of want you to know. But, but we do. If you're here and uh, you love it here, you love the church, then join us officially. There's, there's, there's no... There's no extra special seat. It's not like you get a first-class seat in heaven as a result of this. It's just your way of, of publicly proclaiming, you're my church. And we'd love you to be a part of, uh, a part, officially a part of Living Word Family Church. And to show you our appreciation, we'll give you a directory uh, that we want you in anyway. All right? So fill that out. I'm going to be returning this morning to a message that I have preached once or twice at least in the past. It's been a few years. Uh, I'm going to be looking at it from a slightly different con- in a slightly different context, and I believe it'll bless you, but I also need to say this. One of the things that we've been doing out of an abundance of caution, as the phrase goes, is uh, streamlining the service. You know, we, we're singing one less song uh, during our opening set of praise and worship, um, limiting the number of announcements, and for a while there, uh, I was preaching shorter sermons, and the, the idea is to keep you inside uh, for as uh, little time as, as necessary, and I've jokingly made reference recently to my intention, uh, referring to my intentions to preach shorter, and nobody's complained, nobody's complained of boredom, nobody's complained that I'm keeping you in here too long, but I do need to make an effort to speed things up a bit, so starting next week, no, I'm kidding. All that to say, listen, listen fast. Uh, it's really not a long sermon, but this different perspective requires just a little bit of groundwork first. So here we go. The, uh, how, how many of you are familiar or at least have heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? 
but it is a, uh, it's a series of 107 questions and answers that act as kind of a basics course for young believers, a way of memorizing certain doctrinal truths. In fact, the Shorter Catechism, Shorter Catechism was designed for children. Um, and I can't vouch for all of it. This was developed centuries ago. But the most famous question in the Shorter, Westminster Shorter Catechism is the first one, which is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think they nailed it. I think that's a perfect answer. Uh, because it could have, it's kind of like asking, why did God create man? Or why are we here? But it actually goes straight to our purpose in life rather than starting with wondering what God had in mind when he made us. That's a, that's a little harder question to ask than you might think. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, but first, I'll share this uh, story I've shared, uh, shared with you before. I love it. Ravi Zacharias tells the story of when he was applying uh, to graduate school at Trinity Seminary, I think. Uh, and one of the questions he had to answer is an essay question. The question simply said this, God is perfect, explain. <laughs> God is perfect, explain. He said, he said to his wife, I think the only harder question I can imagine is define God and give two examples. <laughs> so... <laughs> So his answer was this, God is the only being in existence, the reason for whose existence lies within himself. God is the only being in existence, the reason for whose existence lies within himself. And that's a good answer. God is utterly self-sufficient. God needs nothing. God needs no one. Everything and everyone else looks outside to a cause to a reason for his, her, or its existence. The world exists because it was caused by God. Nature exists because it was created by God. You and I find our meaning for existence in God. God doesn't look anywhere outside of himself for his existence. God simply is. Remember when Moses asked God, who shall I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Tell him what? I am has sent you. God does not need us. So the answer, and it was a pretty common answer as a kid uh, when, when uh, this came up in Sunday school, why did God create Adam and Eve? Why did he create mankind? Uh, sometimes the answer was this, because he was lonely. God wanted company. He wanted other people, so he made mankind. But God wasn't lonely, was he? That implies that God had a need, that God lacked something. And God wasn't lonely, why else? Because our God, and here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, but he exists in triune form, and there is perfect community, perfect fellowship in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit was not lonely. Uh, another answer, and this comes a little closer to the truth, says God is love. And love requires an object. If you are love and you are going to love, you have to have someone to love. That comes closer, but again, there is perfect love in the fellowship of the Trinity. God loves the Son. The, Son loves, uh, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Son. The Father loves the Spirit. Right? There is no lack. There is no need. 
The best answer I can give you to that, and I got this one, I believe, from Sister Fuchsia Pickett 30-odd years ago, probably, that simply went like this. God is love, and love does not withhold that which it has the power to give. God is love, and love does not withhold that which it has the power to give. So he loves, he loved us before we were. And because he had the power to give us life, he did. Why did he create us? For us. For us to do what? Glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's super important because sometimes we say, well, what's the purpose, purpose of man uh, to serve him? To serve God. And that sounds good. But did God create man to serve him? What does that imply? That he needed servants. He didn't. He doesn't, right? No. Our service to him is simply an avenue to glorify him. Our service to him actually increases our enjoyment of him. If we are serving him right and with a right heart. It should also be obvious that God does not exist to serve us. When we start with the premise that God created us for our sake, if we're not careful, then we start thinking, well, therefore, he exists to serve me. He exists for my sake. That's not, that's not proper logic. Sadly, uh, remember, God's purpose for being is in himself, and that means he doesn't exist for the purpose of making you happy. He doesn't exist for the purpose of making you healthy or prosperous, and so far, so good. But many well-meaning theologians, many well-meaning individuals have gone too far with that. God is God, they say, not us. And if it suits his inscrutable purposes to make you sick, to make you sad, to keep you poor, then that's his prerogative as God. Now that's going too far. That's going beyond Scripture, right? We exist to serve and please him, they would say, not the other way around. And they hold this thinking even to the point of, under, of understanding divine election. He is God, and he will save who he will save. He will damn who he will damn. He will heal who he'll heal, he'll kill who he, whom he will kill, he will prosper whom he will prosper, and he will make poor whom he will make poor. He is God, not us. The problem with that kind of theology is that it ignores so much of the Bible. It ignores so many specific promises. And I know there's more to it than this. There must be. But sometimes I wonder if so much bad theology is just a sophisticated way of saying, I don't know. He's God. He does what he's... We can't figure it out because he's God. Who are we to question him? And what I love about the real message of the word of faith, and I say that because I believe there is such a thing as a mutation of that message, and I believe there is a, such a thing as a toxic version of the message of the word of faith. Uh, but the reason I love the real word of faith is that it actually provides what I believe are the best answers to why so many Christians are not living in abundance, why there are so many things wrong with the world, why there is a lack of healing, lack of living in victory, and it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. 
But word of faith says that you must know the promise. You must know the word of God. And you must believe it. And you must speak it. It's not just having inner faith. It's speaking the word of faith. There is life and death in the power of the tongue. So it is important that our words line up. Our words are in agreement with God's words. You know, he is my refuge and my fortress. And David wrote a ton of great psalms telling us who God is. But I love how he writes this. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge. He is my fortress. Why not just say, he is my refuge, he is my fortress? As he, and he does in other places. But he makes a point of writing, I will say of the Lord. And we should, we should make a point of not just believing, not just knowing, but saying what we believe and what we know because the Bible makes it clear there is power in our words. Now before I get to the scripture we're going to look at, let me explain what I think is the beginning or the danger point of getting into error in the word of faith. And it's this, that without saying so, or without explicitly believing it, we can, if we are not careful, slip into believing and acting like the chief end of man is to enjoy this life. And that the chief end of God is to bless us, heal us, and prosper us. Because, I don't know, I can't speak to everybody's background, but it really was a beautiful, eye-opening uh, experience to realize that God, who I'd believed in since I was a child, really was for me, is for me, and desires good things for me. That in that sense, he is very similar to a good earthly father, a good earthly parent. You want good things for your children. There is nothing heretical about believing that God wants good things for his children. But it, it's so liberating, especially if you've been laboring under this this uh, flawed theology that God can kill you when he wants to kill you just because uh, we can't question him and he, just, he, he maybe gets glory out of your cancer or out of your poverty or out of your uh, loss, uh, that to be liberated from that, then suddenly we spill over into this, well, if God delights in my prosperity, then I'm just going to go out and believe God for everything. I'm going to believe God for a billion dollars and 50 cars and an airplane and everything else uh, without questioning what is it that God has for me to do at this moment. You understand what I'm saying? The chief end of man is not to be as prosperous and not to be as healthy and not to be as victorious. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. These blessings are to that end. Now we know that. Uh, you know, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33, we read this. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves about on the road? But they kept silent for on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest, talking about in the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. But it's hard to adopt the mindset of a servant if all you hear is that you're the head and not the tail, that you're a child of the king. There's a great line in another Steve Taylor song I quoted uh, a whole song by him several weeks ago. But there's a weird song by him called Easy Listening, and there's a line in there where somebody says, we're king's kids, dang it, and we used to know what a housekeeper was for. 
The beauty of the truth of God's promises of blessing, healing, provision, protection, and victory is this kind of dichotomy that we are promised those things for the purpose of serving one another and serving one another more effectively. Let's look at this story now. You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is a very familiar story. This is the story of David and Goliath. And almost everybody in here, I'm sure, knows it. And the setup is that the Philistine army is encamped against the army of Israel, led by King Saul. And for 40 days, morning and evening, twice a day for 40 days, Goliath, this champion of the Philistines, comes out and he taunts the army of Israel. He challenges them. This guy is 10 feet tall, nearly 10 feet tall. And he comes out and he says, just send one man. You've got a whole army there. Pick your best one. Send him out and he and I will fight. And if he beats me, Philistines will be your servants. If I beat him, Israel will serve us. Now this idea, this is called single combat or a single combat warrior. And, and you can look at it. Uh, and in some cases, I think if you dig through history, you can find where they kind of did this, but it was kind of like a, an economical way of doing warfare. Rather than go into this whole scale, uh, full-on full bloodshed, massive uh, thousands of lives, what, if the gods are in charge of who wins the battle, why not just let two guys settle it rather than uh, 200,000 guys settle it? That wasn't really the way it normally went. Normally... God, that they would see it as God is simply telling you ahead of time who's going to win the battle. But most of the time, even if there was a ceremonial single combat, uh, it would then just be followed by full-scale war. It's just that the army that, whose champion lost would be demoralized going into this battle. And this is what we're going to see here in the story of David and Goliath. But uh, anyway, you know how this turns out, Right? Not even going to read that part. But David, the younger brother of some of Saul's soldiers, is sent by his father Jesse to deliver some bread and some grain and some cheese to his brothers and to their officers, and then to check on the, his brother's welfare and come back and tell Jesse how they're doing. David is uh, too young to be in the army, although probably just barely too young. He gets there, he drops off the supplies, and then goes to his brothers and greets them. And then we pick it up here in 1 Samuel 17, Verse 23, then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, meaning what? Send down a man and we'll fight. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard, and when he spoke to the men, 
heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words, of da- words da- which David spoke were heard, they, were, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Now from there on, that's the part we are most familiar with. Saul allows David to face Goliath and David kills Goliath with a sling and a stone. But what I want you to see is this. In verse 26, David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's really his starting point. God's glory is on the line. David loved God. David trusted God, and he is clearly offended that anyone, even a giant, could have the unmitigated gall to come out and defy his God. Openly, boldly, twice a day, he was experiencing two thoughts, I believe. One was, why hasn't anybody killed him yet? I think he was stunned. And the other, obviously, was, if no one else will kill this guy, I will kill this guy. Because I'm not leaving without seeing this guy dead. But notice what else that's in this, that's in this verse. He, called, he asked for some clarification. While he hears Goliath come out and make his boast for the first time. Send me a man. And David hears the men who are shaking in their boots. I mean, this guy, Goliath comes down, shakes his fist, raises his spear, whatever, hollers his challenge. And the men literally, they're not, it's not like he's right there in their face. But it's, they run and hide. I think they were afraid that, that Saul was going to say, you, go down there and fight him. So they just kind of. Somebody comes out looking for workers, you hide, right? Make yourself scarce. It's kind of an army, uh, army trick. Don't volunteer for anything. But he hears the, the, the soldier saying this. Have you seen this guy? Can you believe him? You know what will happen to the guy who actually goes down and kills him? If that were to happen, the king is going to make him rich. The king is going to make him part of the royal family by giving him his daughter in marriage. And his whole family... His whole household is going to be exempt from taxes. And David said, what? What would you say is going to be done for the man who kills this giant? Now, it's super important that he noticed what they said, and he noticed it so hard that he said, wait a second, say that again. But it wasn't greed or desire for riches, desire to be a part of the king's family, or desire for to be free of taxes that motivated him. Because in, in as part of the same sentence, it was like, because after all, who is this guy to defy the armies of the living God? His point was, look, I've already decided I'm going to kill this guy. 
He doesn't deserve to live. He doesn't have a covenant with God like I do. But you just said something's going to happen if I, gonna, if I go ahead and do what I'm going to do anyway. What was it? And they tell him. And then his brother says, his brother gets mad. What are you doing? Who'd you leave those sheep with? You just came down to look, look at, look at the, I know the, the insolence of your heart and your pride. You just came down to see the battle. And David's like, can you blame me? Is there not a cause? And then turns from his brother and asks again. Now, what will be done? Three times he wanted to hear it. Now, is that selfish of David? Let me stress this to you because I'm convinced that David's success absolutely hinges on this truth. He was going to kill Goliath no matter what if no one else did. David trusted God so perfectly, loved God so deeply, that as soon as he heard the boast of Goliath, he, Goliath, he was filled with righteous indignation. David reveals later that he killed a lion and a bear, practically with his bare hands, because he trusted in God. And he said, this, this, this giant will be just like one of them. And I think he's kind of... Uh, Shocked that there's not a single man in the army who has that kind of faith. It may have alarmed him, it probably offended him, that no one, especially Saul, him, Saul himself, uh, had, had uh, dispatched Goliath. But they were a faithless bunch. They remind me of the children of Israel before they went into the land of promise. The fear that cost them 40 years in the wilderness uh, was manifested when they said, we, you know, we spied out the land, and yep, it's every bit as good as God said it was. Unfortunately, there's giants that live there. And we were as grasshoppers in their sight, and so we were in ours. Now, if they had bothered to conduct interviews with those giants, they would have found out that those giants had been shaken in their boots practically since Israel left Egypt. They find that report out later that they knew that God had already given them over to the children of Israel. But this is one of those truths that we hear, if we're not careful, it begins to sound trite. Don't let that happen. But we must see the enemy, the enemy's size, the enemy's strength, the enemy's ability. We have to see those things compared to God's strength, God's ability, not our own. Saul and the army saw a giant compared to themselves. David saw Goliath compared to God, and all that mattered to David was that he had a covenant with God, and Goliath did not. So David is going to kill Goliath, but he hears about this bonus. And his response was, please, don't offend me by offering me a reward. This is only my duty as a Jew. The only thing I'm concerned about is the glory of God. His response was, wait. Say that again, and say that again. You see, God knows what we are made of, okay? We talk about the lusts of the flesh, and the New Testament rightly, and we rightly warn each other about the lusts of the flesh, not to be led by the flesh, but never forget, God made our flesh. He didn't have to give us taste buds or a sense of smell, and all of the things that make food enjoyable. Did he? 
all he had to do was give us hunger pangs or something just to urge us to eat, just the knowledge that we had to eat to live. But what did he do? He made a variety of foods, plants and animals, so that we could enjoy them. And he gave us spices. And he gave us senses to, to enable us to enjoy this variety. Why? Because he created our flesh. We are not supposed to worship our flesh. We're not supposed to be slaves to our flesh. But there is nothing sinful about enjoying things that satisfy our flesh. Can we agree on that? The key is to enjoy legitimate pleasures, even if they are pleasures that satisfy the flesh, without being ruled by those things. God is the God of all flesh. And it is not Christianity that says spiritual maturity is achieved by extinguishing all of your desires. That's Buddhism. Buddhism says exactly that. That's when you know you have, you have achieved uh, nirvana, when you no longer desire anything. Uh, God, on the other hand, appeals to our desires, doesn't he? Isn't he the one who declares that uh, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore? Also notice this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, in verse, beginning in verse 45. David said to the, then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." He's doing something for the right reasons. What was his reason? As he declared it, by the way, notice he was speaking it out, right? He could have kept his mouth shut out there on his way to, to meet Goliath, swinging his sling until he let it go, but he was speaking faith as he ran to the battle. Today I will kill you. I will feed not only you, but your whole army to the birds and the beasts. Why? So that every, everyone will know that there's a God in Israel. And doing something for the right reasons does not mean you ignore the benefits. He wasn't running out there saying, today I'm going to take your head off that the king may enrich me, that I may marry his daughter, and that I'll no longer have to pay taxes. No, I'm going to take your head off of your shoulders that all may know that there's a God in Israel. And at the end of the day, I'm rich, I marry the king's daughter, and I don't pay taxes. There's nothing wrong with that. When God makes a promise, we do not honor him by refusing to embrace the promise. When we come across a promise in the word of God, what pleases him is when we say, what? Say that again? Really? Okay, wow, I'll take it. Thank you. When we're confronted with the wretchedness of our sin, and when we realize what a great price God paid through Jesus Christ, 
to free us from our sin. We do not honor him at all by refusing the gift of salvation, do we? We don't honor God by crying and saying, I'm not worthy. We honor him who paid that price, how? By receiving the gift and by offering our heartfelt, heartfelt gratitude for that gift. But when we realize the magnitude of that gift, and sometimes it takes a while before we do. Sometimes we receive that gift, we say thank you, and we're like, yeah, I'm saved. And then maybe it's years later before we realize, oh, wow, oh, wow, he really paid a lot to save me. What Jesus went through was tremendous, and we realize what a huge gift it is, and it is a gift, then somehow it seems selfish to ask for anything else, anything more, anything additional. So when people preach and teach that God promises healing, that he promises abundant provision, that he promises victory, some misguided saints even say, that's nothing but selfishness. Salvation is enough. God bought you when he saved you, and he can do whatever he wants with you. And yes, he can, but he cannot lie to you. Can he? And he goes ahead and makes those promises anyway. Our attitude should be like David's. I am going to love God, and I'm going to serve him, and I am going to glorify him no matter what. He's God. He saved me, period. But he promised me what? I'll take it. You know, what if David had refused the honor of marrying Saul's daughter? Do you think that would have pleased Saul? Do you think he'd say, no, thank you, king. I don't want to marry your daughter. Killing Goliath was enough for me. What? I want you to marry my daughter. And we say, no, thank you for the healing, God. I'm just glad to be saved. What? Do you know what I paid to get you healed? Do you think I laid those stripes on the back of my son for nothing? Receive it, son. It is not selfish or greedy when we fight against the enemy when the enemy tries to steal that stuff. It's faith. We glorify God when we walk in his blessings and when we claim his promises. But we must remember when we exercise our confession of faith for these things that the result we are aiming for ultimately is God's glory. The word of faith is not twisting God's arm, trying to get something out of his hand. It's simply actively agreeing with God concerning what he has promised. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. The rest of you can stand. It goes for every promise of God. Look. I've said this before, I'll continue to say it until I have all the answers. Here's what I say until I don't have all the, until I don't, until I have all the answers. Here's my official statement. I don't have all the answers. Some things happen and I can't explain why. I can't explain in every single case why your prayer wasn't answered, why your confession didn't work. But I still know what God's, God's promises aren't vague. He forgives all my sin. He heals all my diseases. He fills my mouth with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagle. He promises me protection, and I claim these things. And thank God to, to the degree to which I, for the degree to which I experience those things, and you too. But sometimes something happens. I'm like, I don't know why that happens. But I'm not going to deny or throw away 
everything I know because I encounter one thing I don't know. He tells me this is yours. I receive it. I speak it. And I expect to walk in it. And what's one of the things we know? His promises are clear. And he has certainly promised. He has promised. He has made it clear in his word that if we will confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart, God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Saved from our sin, saved from hell, saved from eternal death, and saved into his kingdom where we can do what? Enjoy him forever. Have you made that confession of faith? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you have you confessed him as your Lord? Does anybody desire to make that decision today? Don't make it hastily because it's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. But don't delay making that decision because it's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. I see nobody raising their hand, nobody acknowledging their need to make that decision. I hope that's because everybody in here has made that decision. And if that's the case, praise the Lord, guess what? He's made promises that apply to every single one of us. We'll take just a minute to rejoice in that, to thank him for that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the covenant that we have. Thank you for knowing what we're made of. Thank you for not denying our desires, but promising to satisfy them in ways that glorify you. Help us to walk that line. Help us, Lord, to rejoice and enjoy the things you've given us, but let nothing rule over us. Let nothing claim, lay claim to our loyalty other than you and your glory. Help us to see that serving you and glorifying you are ways of enjoying you and just a taste of how we will enjoy you forever. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for provision. Thank you for healing. Thank you for victory, Lord God. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, we'll just wrap this up here in just a second. Uh, do we have a song to go out on? An exit song or final song? Exit song. Right. Thank you. Sorry. We usually clear that up before service. Uh, I'll, just, I'll say a quick prayer over the offering. Um, and remember, there's, does anybody need an extra envelope for mission offering or anything like that? You could, if you're writing a separate mission check, it gets made out to Living Word Family Church, too. just goes into a separate uh, account. Uh, but you can just deposit those in the appropriate receptacles as you leave. What? Oh, grab your directory form and fill that out and get it back to us as soon as possible. We want to have those done here in a month or two. All right. Are you ready to give this morning? What a, what a great honor it is to give. What a great, and are we ready? Can we have that confession ready to pop up? We'll, 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 uh, we'll speak that over our offering right after I uh, pray a short prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And again, thank you for your promise. You've given us uh, a clear opportunity to glorify you and to exercise our faith by obeying you in the tithe and the offering. And we do it joyfully and we do it expectantly. And we believe that because of our obedience, we will also enjoy you, that we will enjoy your provision even here in this life, again, as a taste of enjoying you forever. So thank you for the opportunity to give into the work of your kingdom. We believe that Living Word Family Church is good ground. And we rejoice that Living Word Family Church is a blessing to the work 
of God around the world. And what a joy it is, what a privilege it is to be a part of so many awesome ministries and missions. Thank you, Lord, for giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's say that confession. This is my seed. I sow it into the kingdom of God. I sow because I love God and want to see living word continue to fulfill what God has called us to do. I believe that as I sow my seed, it shall come back to me. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It shall come back to me in many ways. I thank you, Lord, for good opportunities coming my way. I thank you that the windows of heaven are opening because of my obedience to sow my seed. I thank you, Lord, for the favor of God upon my life and the grace to prosper as you have promised me in your word. Amen. God bless you as you give. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.